This is Jason. You're listening to Clever Creature. It's an experimental variety show and a creative leap of faith. Each episode starts with a word randomly picked by an algorithm. I write and produce a story and a song about the word. I sit down with a guest to talk about the random word and also about creative risk taking. And because I'm a 90s kid, there's a bonus track, a short guided meditation at the end of each episode. If you like what you're hearing, you can help the show by rating or reviewing it on iTunes, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you're listening. Because algorithms rule the world, it really helps Clever Creature to get noticed if you leave a comment or a review. This project is dedicated to my sister, Mary Hamilton, who was always so much braver than me. Extra special thanks to my son, Emre, who composed and plays the theme music and also acts in today's short story. Okay, let's get going. Season one is eight episodes every other Tuesday from May to August 2020. This is the final episode of season one, Siege. Laird, I know you can hear me. Your daddy loves you, but this isn't funny anymore. You need to open the door. Maybe you locked it by accident? I'm not mad. I can help you open it. Laird, open this door immediately. The Razor Kraken 7.1 V2 delivers an immersive surround sound gaming experience to enhance your uh, oral situational awareness. You'll always hear where the enemy is coming from and where your team is located to strike with precision. This noise isolation is perfect. I can't hear anything. Daddy was loud for a long time, but now I can't hear him at all. The only thing is I'm getting hungry. I need to get the Halloween candy, but it's in the closet, and the headset's attached to the PC. Should have asked for the Bluetooth. Laird! Laird! Who? I'm a muffin! And it's muffin time! Who wants a muffin? Please, I just wanna die! Got it. Okay, 100,000 grand bars. I'll eat four now. No, five. And five for dinner. Maybe some nerds. Jody was right. But I was at the end of my rope. Going out of my mind with the Parker report and goddamn Felicia breathing down my neck and meanwhile the kid is escaping every night and wandering around the hallway. So yeah, okay, maybe I got a little security obsessed and maybe the multi-point lock fire door on Laird's bedroom was probably overkill. But to me, it was a low risk, high consequence scenario. Laird could have fallen down the stairs or wandered outside and been kidnapped or hit by a truck. Laird, listen to me. Your mommy is away at a conference. She won't be back for 10 days. I don't have my phone. She will be scared when I don't call her. She will worry about us. Can you give me my phone? Just slip it under the door. You don't have to open it. This is awesome. The sound on these things is unbelievable. This is as immersive as it gets until VR. I can't wait for VR. I mean, the Oculus Quest is good and all, but my friends are on Minecraft. So as soon as something people really play a lot, like Minecraft comes out for the Quest, I'm totally getting one. Daddy, can I get an Oculus Quest? Laird? 
What did you say? Laird, come here. Oh, right. I can't hear him anyway. What was I thinking? The Razor Kraken 7.1 V2 is like VR for years. I can hear the enemies behind me. It's like a 3 millisecond response time advantage, but with some of these guys, that's a big deal. Take that, noob. Time for your lava bath. Security bars on the windows. No tools in here. God damn it, how did he even know which key it was? Jody lets him do whatever the hell he wants. Eight hours a day of Minecraft, pizza every night for dinner. But the moment I speak up, the moment I try to set some reasonable limits to protect him from this predatory culture so he doesn't grow up another obese American zombie, what happens? I get locked in his bedroom. Daddy? Laird? Hi, sweetie. Hi, Daddy. Laird, could you please give me my phone? It's on the kitchen counter. Mommy will be worried. So I did some research. What's great about the Oculus Quest is that it has a built-in guardian system that 3D maps the boundaries of your space, so you can move around without getting hurt. And some of these VR games are really vigorous, so I'd be getting lots of exercise. Sweetie, we already talked about this. It doesn't have Minecraft. Actually, it can connect to hundreds of great games on my gaming PC through the Rift platform. I think it's worth it. It's only $4.99 for the 128 gigabyte model, so you're basically getting laboratory-quality VR for a tenth of the price. How is it laboratory quality? The specs are identical to what they use at the Stanford VR lab. That's impossible. Do you know Linus Tech Tips? No. How about Random Frank P? No. Here's an easy one, Pink Chip Z. No. Okay, so you admit that you don't know the top gaming hardware reviewers on YouTube with millions of fans each? Hitler had millions of fans. Fans doesn't mean good. Please somebody kill me. Please it's muffin Laird, time. Come die, back die, here. Die. I'm die, hungry. Die, die. I need to pee. Mommy will be worried. Laird! Oh, no way! Linus Tech Tips has a new post! I heard this podcast about water fasts. This guy was saying that he'd been doing them regularly for the past few years, like eating nothing for four days and drinking only water, and that it gave him all kinds of insights and clarity. I'm trying to treat this like that. I'm trying to take advantage of this forced isolation and, you know... Maybe become a better person. Maybe if I hadn't been wound so tight all this time, this wouldn't have happened in the first place. I'm not saying it's my fault. I don't believe in that victim mentality. Still, I'm trying to take ownership. I'm trying to evolve here. But I don't have any water. I forget how long you can live without water. Five days? It's not much more than that, I don't think. Laird! It's funny how you think you want something, like you think all the time about how you want this one thing, like a gaming PC, but then you get it, and I mean it's okay for a while, but then it starts to get boring, so you need a new thing. But sometimes that new thing doesn't come out for a while, or your parents won't get it for you. Like when Fortnite died, there wasn't anything to play until PewDiePie and Laserbeam told everyone to play Minecraft, and then suddenly everyone was playing Minecraft again. I feel a little sick. I can't believe I ate all the candy. Dad, when's mommy coming home? Laird? Are you there? Listen, daddy is starving and dying of thirst. Remember when we read about the kidneys? The kidneys need water. Soon, my kidneys will start to shut down. And when that happens... When's mommy getting home? Seven days! Seven days. Laird, please let me out. We'll get that Oculus Quest. We'll go out to Antonio's. Daddy doesn't want to be your enemy. He's just trying to set limits because he loves you. Do you understand? Daddy loves you. It's hard, Laird. It's hard for us parents today. 
They keep making these machines and we don't understand them and they're designed to addict you and keep you addicted and these people are geniuses. You gotta trust me, son. They've studied psychology. They know how your mind works better than you do and you're my son and all I want for you is grass and trees and sky and free thought. Maybe a dog to play with. Maybe we could get a dog. Laird, would you like that? A little puppy? I don't even feel like playing Minecraft anymore. I want an Oculus Quest. Pink Chip Z says it's like a lucid dream. He once spent 72 hours straight inside VR and he said it totally changed his reality. He said real life was like the dream after that. And I mean, I get it. The real world feels more real because you can touch it and everything. But when the haptic controls get really good, honestly, the only difference will be that in the virtual world, you can do or be anything you want to. You could fly. You could live in an ice cream desert. And when the nutrition pills or whatever get really good, you could just eat one pill and keep your body going. So you could have like a stack of them next to you and just survive forever in that world of endless possibility. I think that the government should just give all the money to the programmers so we can get there faster. So everyone can see for themselves how great it is. Even daddy. I don't understand what we're waiting for. Okay, recording. It's Tuesday, the 28th of April. We're, you know, about a month and two weeks into the lockdown here. And by the time people hear this, it's going to be hopefully a very different world uh, because this is episode eight, the last episode of season one that I'm recording this for. Um, I'm recording in just about an hour with Jerry Craft, the graphic novelist, and hopefully going to have my son Emre come in and ask him a couple questions about his recent graphic novel, New Kid, that is from the perspective of a 12-year-old about to go to seventh grade, just as Emre is. This first season, I mean, it's still ongoing. There's still work to be done, you know, editing and sound designing, even recording some things you know, I'll probably still be working on finalizing bits and pieces of each episode, even the weeks that they're they're going out. But the season has a shape. It has an arc. I know now what this work is. I've done it since February, I guess. And uh, yeah, I know what's involved in each of these episodes and know something more about myself in this process. It's been tremendous fun. And You know, always, I think the thing has got to be, I mean, I don't know how people like Dave Letterman, you know, who do these weekly super high intensity shows, you know, these sort of A-type people who just pressure themselves all the time toward total perfection. Like, I don't don't know how they sustain that. For me, there has to be a negotiation between the pleasure of productivity on the one hand, like the sense that there's a thing and it's planned and we're getting it done and we're moving forward, you know, and then there's going to be a thing to show at the end of it. And the play, the play of the thing itself, there needs to be some kind of balance between those two things. I think there are maybe people on the other end of the spectrum, right, who just make art 
of any kind, whatever is coming to them without much regard for who's going to hear it. And, you know, maybe that's easier if you live somewhere where that's super affordable or if you don't have to worry about money or if you're just doing something else for a living. But, you know, for me, this work is also engaged in the world. It's out there. It's, you know, it's part of this kind of like integrated whole of what I'm trying to do in the world. And so that that makes it this balance between like the expectations of the world and and my own expectations. I mean, the other thing I wanted to talk about is very pertinent to everyone right now at the time of recording this, which is isolation and art, isolation and creativity. This work, I mean, especially now it's the time for me to start putting it out in the world. It's the time to tell people about it and do the kind of promotional work, which which really doesn't come easily to me, but is at its best just a reaching out and saying, hey, you know, here's this thing that I've done and I want you to hear it. And in doing that, you're inviting people in, you're inviting people to connect with it and by extension to connect with you, you know, and I'm going to do things with this show that further invite that kind of connection. Like I still haven't figured out the mechanism, but hopefully inviting people to submit their own word-driven art, you know, and to talk about creativity and creative risk-taking and creative blocks and all of those kinds of things. I mean, that's the reaching out. And that's you know, like, I very keenly and and very, I mean, not to depress anyone, but I would say desperately feel that need for a connection at this time. I want that. And I'd also love to have it in the work itself. And that's the other thing I really wanted to talk about, which is that in creative work all these years, I've always done it alone. I've written poems in isolation. I've written in journals. I've written songs, you know, and sometimes sort of cautiously I've shared them with others. Clever Creature is the widest I've ever shared anything like this. But there's almost never been a situation where I've been able to work with other people creatively. And I'm not going to chalk that up to some like profound deficiency in my character. It would be, I think it's a goal to move towards. I would really love, for example, to have a producer on this show, somebody who is capable of sound design and who could like give me tough but loving feedback on the episodes and just work with them to make the thing as good as it can possibly be. I think that would be amazing. And I, that's a goal for the future of this show. And just generally keenly feeling the need for wider creative connection with other people. Because, you know, a lot of the origin of this kind of work for me, as I think it is for a lot of people who do creative work, came out of private, difficult feelings that I didn't have anyone to express them to or know any other way to express, you know, so they came out of isolation. And so it's natural that in trying to create work that comes out of a sense of isolation and that deals with private subjective feelings, you know, confessional work, I guess, a lot of the early songwriting and poetry I did was, it's natural that you, that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that with anyone else. But I think there's a different kind of pleasure and sustainable just joy and happiness to be found if you can emerge either sometimes or entirely from that from that place of private subjective introspection and, and turmoil <laughs> into a place of creative connection with others. I think if anything should characterize the transition to season two, which I'm hoping to launch in February, I hope that some aspect of that will be it.
will be about about the way that season one has enabled connections with other people, you know, listeners, other other would-be artists or artists in hiding, and maybe also collaborators. That would be beautiful. Okay. And I should say also that since the taping with David Sedaris, I am a little scared of the random word generator because <laughs> the word for that episode was um, precedent. And I was super patient. I just sat there. But he understandably had absolutely nothing to say about that word. Anyway, I am going to generate a random word right now and we'll just deal with whatever it is. Hopefully it is not something totally vague like precedent, but whatever it is, we got to go with it. Ooh, <laughs> the word, <laughs> so often they're kind of hostile and negative. Um, well, maybe not. Maybe that's just my interpretation. The word is, but this one is clearly hostile and negative. It is siege. That's kind of cool. That's pretty evocative. The word of the episode is siege. See you on the other side. Scraping sound in the basement floor A hole 
My guest today is cartoonist and illustrator Jerry Kraft, creator of the syndicated cartoon strip Mama's Boys, Jerry's latest graphic novel, New Kid, about a transition to middle school complicated by issues of race and class, won the Newbery Medal and the Coretta Scott King Book Award. I mean, first of all, congratulations, huge congratulations on the Newbery. I wonder whether the Newbery is of benefit, is a hindrance, or is just neutral with respect to writing the sec- second book. You know, the the biggest thing with winning the Newbery and the sequel is I think it's a blessing that HarperCollins, I guess, had seen that they wanted a sequel before all the hoopla really started. Okay. So I had already finished writing it. Uh, it's called Class Act. And I handed it in in December. Oh, okay. Of last year. So 20, December 2019. So by the time I won the Newberry and the Credit Scott King Awards, it was already done. So it wasn't at all like if I had started it today. Right. (laughs) You know, I think if I started it today, there would be a lot of pressure. But the fact that it was already done, I was like, you know, that was probably a good thing. So Mm -hmm. it, it hasn't really played into it at all. You know, one of the things I think about on this show is creative risk, vulnerability. I feel like seventh grade middle school in general is such a fertile area for danger, risk, growth. How do you feel about that with respect to to New Kid? Yeah, seventh grade, (laughs) I was a new kid. I had been at a school, my elementary school went one through six. And so I had been there basically my whole young life. And seventh grade for me was definitely going to a new school. It was me and a couple of friends that had all transferred. 
And it was very different because now these kids had been together since some of them kindergarten. Mm. So we we really were the new kids, you know, coming in. Uh, But it wasn't until I went to high school where the Jordan Banks aspect came in of me being in this predominantly white, uh, fairly prestigious private school. Right. So luckily... I had a little bit of experience at being a new kid already, so that made the transition a little better. But right. you know, it was very different because the surroundings in this new situation were much different than anything I had ever experienced. One of the things I loved best in in New Kid is the um, there are a couple of instances, you know, sequences where you're dealing with code switching. And one of the funniest ones where I was laughing out loud was like the subway ride from Jordan's neighborhood up to the school is um, Riverdale Academy uh-huh. Day School, right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And how in the various neighborhoods he feels comfortable, in a sense, inhabiting different identities. Well, first, so I'm glad that you had laugh out loud moments. <laughs> that that was something that was really important because I knew specifically dealing with potentially volatile subjects such as race and class. Mm. It would be very easy, especially from a young African-American boy's perspective, to be seen as angry or complaining or, you know, something like that. So the laugh out loud aspect of it was a part that I worked really hard to make sure that that happened. As far as the code switching, which is a term that did not exist when I was <laughs> right. that age. Right. But it was definitely something that I did because, you know, I got on the M100 bus, you know, in Washington Heights, happened to go up to Riverdale. So there's Harlem, then Washington Heights, then like Inwood. And the neighborhoods changed. So, you know, we had the public school kids from John F. Kennedy who were a little intimidating for me because even though we were all African-American, I didn't look like any of them. I was much smaller. I had straight hair, light complexion. So that was very different. Right. And then they all much bigger than me, darker skin with like cool afros and more into fashion and stuff. And, you know, they would come on it as groups. And I just kind of sat there and could not wait for them to get off so that I could then take out my sketchbook and start drawing. Because in that context, if you pulled out your sketchbook, you would definitely have been a target, I guess, for comments and maybe someone messing with your sketchbook. Yeah, (laughs) right. Even even if it was even if it was just a a little thing like, hey, what is that? Hey, everyone, look at him. You know, oh, oh, draw me, draw me. Right, right. I just knew that whatever it was, it wasn't attention that I wanted, <laughs> Right. you know. And so then as that changed and then we get into Inwood, then I could if I had to take out a book to read for school, I could do that or study for a test or something like that. I, it, I didn't have to be quite as conscious about trying to look cool. And then when I started getting up to Inwood, then all of a sudden that was much different because... Now I'm not a black kid with markers who's just drawing Spider-Man. Now it's like, oh, okay, as soon as we turn our backs on this kid, he's going to use those markers to, to tag the, right, right, the bus, right, right. you know, and, and write graffiti all over the bus, you know. So now you go out of your way not to look cool. So 
you know, in the book I had it where by the time he gets to school, he's absolutely exhausted. And so there was definitely a lot of that where it's like, wow, you guys have no idea what I have to do even just to get to the school. Yeah. You know, like I, I should get like 10 extra points in my <laughs> quiz just for that. And it seems like for Jordan and, you know, it's impossible not to kind of go back and forth between Jordan and you. And you can you can tell me where where one stops and the other begins as need be. But humor is a major strategy for Jordan in terms of like normalizing his, his experience in terms of gaining control over his environment and finding, yeah, a way to feel OK in a situation where sometimes they're like threatening or misunderstanding others. Yeah, humor has always played a large portion on how I dealt with things. You know, one of the big things is when I went to Fieldston in Riverdale, there were four friends and myself who just bonded and we just have been lifelong friends and we dealt with everything with humor. So, you know, I went to a reunion of African-American students maybe about five, ten years ago. Right? Okay, at Fieldston. Yeah, right, at yeah. Fieldston, right. Yeah. And some of those kids, even now as almost 60-year-old adults, were so scarred by some of the things that had happened to them. And my thing was like, wow, where was I? How come I'm not crying and, and reliving these things? Mm. And I think that so much of it was because of the way that we dealt with things. We just really were able to kind of blow it off and keep it moving. And, right. you know, so I guess we were, we were very fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, I guess it maybe it helped that you had each other, you know, to do that yeah. with as well. So that brings me to something else, which is like a very complicated thought that I think I may explain in a confusing way, and then we can try to break it down better. You know, okay. there's a there's this thing in the book in New Kid where Jordan, the kind of art he wants to make, he wants to draw cartoons, he wants to draw comics. He does not want to be pushed into abstract art, or I'd say like artsy art, or you know, far out, more experimental art. Right. In conjunction with that, I thought about how about how humor and cartooning and comics can sometimes be, in the best possible sense, a, a conservative thing in that they are trying to like preserve a certain bubble of reality, like to say, OK, this is my experience. This is the world as I see it. You know, those you know, this person is funny for this reason. That one is funny for that reason. And yet Jordan has this really interesting experience of pushing beyond his boundaries with the help of the art teacher and the abstract art. I guess I'm wondering about that tension or process in your work over the years between realism and the world as you see it and then pushing beyond your own boundaries as an artist into like maybe risky new territory? Well, you know, a lot of that didn't come until much, much later because I did eventually get to art school. Right. And so in, you know, Jerry Craft in real life, <laughs> so much of New Kid is based on me wanting to be an artist. My parents didn't want me to be an artist. And even though I had taken the test for music and art and art and design and gotten into them, my parents did not want me to go to art school. Right. So that much is Jordan Banks' life. 
And then when it came time to go to college, I was able to make my own choice. So I went to the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. Right. And that was interesting because, you know, here I am, this kid born in Harlem, grew up in Washington Heights. And all I really know about art is Marvel Comics <laughs> and, you know, kind of like the paintings that you see that are just like landscapes and or, you know, of course, you heard of the classics, the Mona Lisa and things like that. So realism, realism. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And then having a painting teacher who was just like you break a plate and you glue it to the canvas. <laughs> right, right. And then you pour paint over it, and then you take off your shirt and you roll on it, and then, you know, you put red paint on the dog and let him walk on it, and then you you sell the canvas for, like, $20,000. Right, right. That was totally different. And it was actually fairly disappointing because I would have needed them to explain and try to give me the appreciation of this stuff as opposed to just all of a sudden, you know, everything that you've ever liked is bad and this is the only true art. Okay. And now you have to do this, you know. It sets up a duality and an opposition and you're going to reinforce your own ego around the stuff that you know how to do. Yep, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that you know, and I had had the same thing with reading, you know, because, again, I love reading Marvel Comics. And my teachers were like, hey, you know, this will rot your brain. Uh, I'm saving you from this. So here, instead of doing something that you enjoy, read this 10,000 page book on a family of coal miners from Hungary in 1852. <laughs> and it's just like, holy moly, really? So literally my whole life, you know, up until graduating high school was like everything that I wanted to do was wrong. You know, like what I wanted to read was wrong. What I wanted to draw was wrong. Uh, like until I was an adult. Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. I went to uh, Paris about three years ago with a group of artists and we went to the Louvre and the Picasso Museum, mm. and going with these artists, that was the first time where I really got an appreciation of this. Like, going to the Picasso Museum, I realized, oh, okay, he really could paint well, like right. the way that I wanted. Right. But this was an actual choice that he chose to do. And then I, once I discovered that, I was like, oh... I get it. And that was something that I did not get while I was in school, because even like the art history classes seem more like history classes. Like I might as well have been learning about the Revolutionary right. War. Um, so it took a long time to get an appreciation of that as opposed to fighting violently to hold on to, you know, what kept it real for me. That makes sense. You know, Picasso is a good example that way because he was so unbelievably prolific that you can kind of do a very detailed timeline of his work and you can see exactly the process, you know, all the steps in the various evolutions and experimentations from realism to more far out and abstract things. So you Absolutely. can you can kind of exactly see how he was doing that. 
in New Kid, it feels to me like even though it's all graphically roughly in the same style, except for we do go into we do go in, into Jordan's sketchbook and then we see a different style there. Mm -hmm. But still, I feel like there's a lot of breath and playfulness in the visual style, like sometimes things getting a little a little more loose and freeform or like a little more mm -hmm. spaciousness and then and then going into detail. And, and then also one of the most interesting things you do, I think, is this I don't, I'd call it expressionism or whatever, where you turn what what Jordan is feeling into the visual reality. Like, for example, everyone being a zombie going to school. Right. Or, or the perspective in the cafeteria, perspective changing. Did you, you know, always do that? Did you come to that gradually? You know, when you grow up as an African-American in this country, you know, my perspective was that, you know, I could watch the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family and all these things as a kid. And hey, okay, well, that's me. I'm Greg Brady. <laughs> right. But, you know, I don't know if as someone who's not black, if you ever related to an African-American character ever, if you ever said, hey, I am... God, how can I forget his name? On on different strokes. Willis and Arnold? Yeah, Arnold. For a while, I think I like, I spiritually identified with his playful kind of personality. Wow. But yeah, no, I mean, we don't, we, look, come on. Yeah, we don't have, we don't have a ton of black role models growing up as I did in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And even things like when you get to books and cartoons, you know, I mean, that's what was so great about the Black Panther movie was that for the first time I felt that you had white kids going, mm. I want to be him for Halloween. Mm. But generally speaking, you would probably did not grow up wearing, you know, with the exception of maybe Fat Albert, uh, <laughs> did not grow up wearing, you know, I wore Charlie Brown t-shirts and it just never translates the other way around. So knowing that, I was like, okay, I have to be very playful with this because I could lose that audience quickly. Right. If I was too condemning, came off as angry. But let which me is so let me ask you this. Like, how uh -huh. do you I can imagine a couple different ways of feeling about that? Because on, on one level, that's another form of being constrained by the society at large. On another level, it's a strategy that you might actually relate to, that you might find, you know, I so I don't know. Like how do you how do you feel about the fact that you had to adapt in those ways. I mean, I think it's wonderful what came out, but... You know, I mean, I, I fought this my whole life because I, you know, have always wanted to do a book like New Kid mm. that you or your son could read and be like, wow, I want to be this kid <laughs> or I want to have a friend like him or, you know what I mean? Like you could grow up and want a friend like... Bugs Bunny or Winnie the Pooh or Pinocchio, but there's never any kind of black character where I think you feel that kind of camaraderie with. Right, right. And, you know, so there's no... Where the whole focus of the thing is not on blackness, which sometimes may be necessary for whatever, you know, the author is trying to do, but, but there are not enough examples of kids just being kids while being right. African-American and, you know, dealing with all those aspects of themselves. Right. Like, yeah. And if it is uh, dealing on blackness, that it's not dealing on the 
misery and pain of blackness. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Where right. it's like, hey, you know, the worst thing that happened today was that he went to the mall <laughs> and they were out of his favorite ice cream. Right. Like, right. That let, let that be the trauma for the day. You know, there are enough stories where, you know, he gets arrested or he gets this or he gets that. So That's right. I yeah, yeah. just really did not want to fall into that trap of doing stories that you or anyone expected. So it was all very thought out from the fact that, that Jordan wears a hoodie, which is often the thing that's like, oh, if you're in a hoodie, you're you're in a gang, <laughs> right? you know, right, or you're right, right. a certain type of person. So, Or you're Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But see, right. See, he now as a white male, <laughs> right. uh, that's a whole different kind <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh, than uh-huh. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. a young black male walking in the hoodie right no yeah know, yeah I'm joking. or wearing his cap backwards or right. you know something like that right. you know it's like hey you could be the owner of the dallas mavericks you know <laughs> right. and wear the same thing but if you look like someone else then it's a whole nother connotation yeah 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 if you're a black kid with your hood on in i don't know on the yeah upper west side or whatever that's a different right thing. what are you yeah. what are you hiding yeah why yeah. aren't you showing your yeah, face yeah, yeah. you know that kind yeah, of thing yeah. yeah and it's always like that so even and not getting political but just pointing out stuff like even protests if i were to protest something that is near and dear to my heart that comes off as, hey, why don't you just shut up and appreciate the fact that you're here, mm-hmm. where now you could go out and protest the fact that, you know, you haven't gotten a haircut <laughs> in, in four weeks. <laughs> Which I haven't, yes, indeed. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. So, hey, grab your picket sign, you know. <laughs> so you could be standing next to me and you have a sign saying, hey, I want my hair cut <laughs> and I have a sign that says I want equality for my children. And you're like, hey, pal, suck it up. Stop complaining, will you? And the reality is that, you know, it seems like Jordan and it seems like you were a complicated kid with many intersecting identities, you know? So like you, yep. you know, and I actually, I think everyone, everyone is. And so maybe that fundamentally is the point is that like, there's this wonderful moment in the, in, in New Kid of uh, comparing the literature that librarians hand, generally hand out to African-American kids. It's like- Escapism. Escape from the ghetto, right. escape from slavery. And, or it's just like gritty, dark, you know, terrible, hyper-realistic urban stories versus... The magic of the magical magicon. (laughs) Right, right. A magical adventure. And then she gives the black kid the mean streets of South Uptown. It's like, you know, you're really going to be able to identify with this kid who was in a gang. You know, why can't I have the magic of the magical magicon? You know, so... You know, you're teaching them, like, total freedom, total power, total, like, you know, personal efficacy, whatever, as opposed to you might just barely be able to survive. And that's sort of the best you can hope for. Right, right. You never live. You just only survive. And what's crazy is like I taught middle school for a little while. And some of the reasons why that literature exists is a lot of hand wringing on the part of mostly white educators, you know, about like, oh, we're losing 
you know, young boy readers, they're not reading. And then we're particularly losing black boys because they're not interested in these books. And so someone needs to write books that are going to, in all of that, I think, as you're basically saying, a lot of people get shoved into boxes that they they don't need to be occupying. Yeah, because, you know, when you're reading a book, when you're in third grade and your teacher reads a book on slavery, you're in second grade. Like, what do you do with <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? And then you have even your friends, if you don't really know first and second grade how different you are, and then all of a sudden you're reading this and every kid turns around and stares at you, you know, or right. jokingly then says, hey, you know, you at recess, you need to get on the back of the bus. Ha, 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 ha. Right, right. It's like, how is that an inspirational tale for an, a seven year old? Total non sequitur now. Let's <laughs> let's go to the random word of the episode, which comes from a it comes from an algorithm on the internet i just press a button it gives me a word and then you know that's what i write the story and the song from and the word for today i'm gonna say it and then we can take two seconds just think like what does it bring up for you if anything metaphorically actually whatever and let's just talk a bit from there okay okay all right the word is siege it's like password. The word is siege. You're in a better position because you get to think of real things. I have to actually like make a song and a story somehow based on siege. Well, siege isn't so hard, but but yeah, what, what comes up for you? You know, it's the weirdest thing. When I was a kid, there was a movie called Siege okay. that <laughs> starred uh, Martin Balsam and Dorian Harewood. Okay. And it was about Martin Balsam, this kindly old Jewish man and his kindly old Jewish friends. And Dorian Harewood literally just took over where they lived and robbed everyone and beat them. And Oh my God. It, yeah, it was. <laughs> and so even as a young black kid, I'm rooting for this 70 year old Jewish man, you know, and his family to stop this like thug in Dorian Harewood. Um, oh my God. This was just on TV, like on reruns, or you went to this movie or what? No, this, yeah, this is a movie that I just remember from my childhood. <laughs> okay. Even then, so many of the movies I rooted for you guys because that was who <laughs> told the story, you know? There was another one, and, and mm. you know, I, I got me segueing. But Zulu, and I think with Michael Caine, and it was like the British troops, and they're in Africa, and, you know, they're fighting these Zulus, and I'm rooting for Michael Caine and all. And in years, they're like, hey, wait a minute. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. Like, why am I rooting, rooting you know, if so if you had written it from the Zulu perspective. Right. It's like, you know, they're protecting their wife and kids and, you know, like, right, hey, right, these, right. These, these guys showed up on a boat. I don't know what they're doing. You know, hey, I'm going to go fight to protect you and my loved ones. And so there's that whole thing that until the lion tells his own story, 
history will always favor the hunter or something like that. We have this, yeah, we have this thread, this literature of civilization versus savagery going back to early maritime exploration or whatever, that, that right. then those themes continue on, like the person trying to live their normal life beset by the wild other. And inevitably, the wild other is a person of color because... Right. Yeah. So that that's like, I'm having dinner with my family. You come in and like, just start taking my stuff. And then I'm like, hey, get out of here. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> you know, he just went crazy. What happened? What, you know... What kind of savage is he? I'm like, dude, you take up my TV and my food. Just, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> here watching Netflix with my kids, you know. It would be interesting to do a satirical inversion of that with like with a black family being besieged by by like right. an elder, by elderly Balsam. white <laughs> Jewish gang. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should do that. Um, so I, I want to respect your time, but I, I, if I can keep you just a little longer, I wonder if I could bring my son Emre in. Sure. I know he's thought about a couple things to ask you, and he's he read New Kid, and I'll, I'll bring him in now. Yeah, absolutely. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm all right. I read the book you made, and I, I really liked it. It was fun and also very relatable in a lot of different ways to my experience so oh good yeah yeah i i was happy to do it i'm working on a sequel oh really now oh absolutely so i am doing part two of that yeah and so i work on it a little bit every single day and i'm actually working on it now like this is some of the stuff that i Oh, cool. So this is, yep. So it's called Class Act and it will be out in October of this year. Do you see a big yellow area on my screen? And then I just go in digitally like this. So if I want to draw, you know, so this is kind of how I do the whole process. So I work hours and hours, like I'm already working for the morning and then I will probably work till about, you know, I'll stop here and there. I didn't work till about, you know, 2 a.m. or something like that and get up because, you know, there's a lot of stuff in that book. You know, it's 200 pages. Yeah. Well, 250. It's a lot. So do you have any questions about the story or the process or Um, being a new kid or anything? A couple of things that I wanted to ask. I mean, first of all. I just wanted to say that the, I mean, the art in the book is beautiful. Thank you. And just um, two questions. One, like, I could definitely tell that, like, a lot of this story resonated and was probably from somewhat of your personal experience, but, like, how much of it is fiction and how much of it is, like, your experience so there is a lot of it that is my experience um one of the things is when i uh was growing up uh the house where jordan lives is actually the house where i grew up oh cool yep so you know, I lived on the top floor of his house, just like, uh, you know, just like he did. I wanted to be an artist. 
Um, my yep, my parents did not want me to be an artist, so they sent me to a school in Riverdale. So all of that kind of stuff from Jordan uh, is my life. Um, I actually will show you. Let me see. Did the did my screen change for you? Uh yes. Oh wow. What do you see? That yep. yeah. So I, this is yeah side by side. That yep. is very yep. So that was my house here in Washington Heights, and then I just turned that into where Jordan. Oh wow. Uh, lives. That looks and really. And then, <clears throat> as an adult, um, I have two sons of my own, and they went to a school similar to Fieldston, where I went, or Red, where Jordan Banks goes. And that was where I got to see a lot of stuff as a dad, you know. So I was very sensitive, maybe even more sensitive to what they were going through. Because, you know, as a dad, you, you want to protect your kids, you know. Right. And so a lot of the things like the, the unofficial dress code and, um, you know, the pinks and the salmons and calling kids of color by the wrong name and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of that was from their school and their experience of what I saw. So I would say it was probably about 50-50. Oh, cool. That's a lot more than I would have thought. So that that's really interesting. Yeah, and so, some characters I made up just to be fun, like Alexandra, the girl that wears the puppet right. on her hand. Right. Like, I, I didn't have a, <laughs> a friend that did that. Right. Um. You know, and, you know, like Andy might have been like three or four kids I kind of put together merged. into one character. Right. Merged. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So there was a lot of it that was inspired by real events. That's cool. Yeah. Also, one other thing, like I noticed a lot of the time when you were trying to like emphasize certain moments in the story when there are very powerful moments. Sometimes like the camera might like zoom out or there would be text which was in the background or there are just a lot of different style choices that I wouldn't have really thought of and you don't really think about like the shadows getting bigger but like it really impacts the experience of the story. Was that like a conscious decision and if it was, then, like, where did you get that? Did you just think about that, or was that, how did that happen? Yeah, you know what? I I had definite goals because I read a lot of graphic novels, and my sons had read them, so I would really look to see what my goal was. And I know with, like, the Raina Telgemeier books, Smile and Drama and Sisters, that everyone always raved over like the character development and and the the plot and so sort of the realism. So I like that I saw how my boys lost their minds when they read Wimpy Kid because they liked it because it was funny and silly. Mm. So I knew I wanted to use humor. And then when I looked at like the Amulet series, like the artwork was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I've read the whole thing, so, so it's, yeah. it's very good. Right. And so I knew that I wanted to do my version of like a really good story with lots of cool artwork that could also make you laugh. Right. You know, so I, that was my goal was to set off to do something like that. Mm -hmm. So visually, um, I just really spent a lot of time 
pushing things and making something silly. So like when Jordan has that scene with Alexandra and she's going to take the puppet off of her hand, I actually want to show what he thinks is, you know, her hand is going to look like. Right, or right. Yeah. When he goes into the cafeteria, you know immediately how he feels because I draw him like he's six inches tall, like as mm-hmm. small as a milk carton or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, of thought behind it to try to make something that um, someone like you would love and want to yeah. read a second or third time. Even. Definitely. Um, I don't think I need to tell you this, but you did a great job doing that. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, always, it's always nice to hear. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. And, oh, you're welcome. And Class Act will be out in October, hopefully. That That's what we're shooting for. I will. Same characters. It'll be the eighth grade year. Oh, cool. Yep. And, awesome. And good luck in school when that all gets back together. Right. Yeah. Yep. I Thank you. Yep. You got it. Thank you so much for talking to Emre. You're welcome. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed you're talking welcome. to you, Jerry. Thanks for having me. that's the end of season one of clever creature i'll be back early in 2021 hopefully with a different president and special guests whose work intersects meaningfully with the natural world if you liked what you heard this season i would love to hear from you you can email me through my website jasongotts.com or you can join our facebook group friends of clever creature and if you're of a mind too and you've got 10 or 15 minutes please stick around for a bonus guided meditation at the end So for this guided meditation, whether you are walking or sitting, find a comfortable posture, one that is not militaristic and stiff, nor slouched and collapsed. As anyone who does yoga might know, and maybe you learn in other forms of athletics or exercise, there's a real energetic difference, you know, a real difference in how, how the body and the spirit feels depending on posture. You want an upright, open sense. Today, um, I want to do a modified version of what traditionally is called metta, translated sometimes as loving-kindness. I like Anushka Fernando Paul's translation as unstoppable friendliness. It's a practice designed to open the heart, open acceptance for yourself and for other people. And in some ways, Every meditation does that, breath meditation as well. All meditation is, in a sense, freeing us from the blocks that we set up internally, the things that we hold on too tightly to that then remain in spiritual muscle memory. But metta practice goes directly to it in a slightly different way. So 
So begin with the attention on you. Try to think of a time or a place when you felt most welcome, most safe. It can be long ago or it can be somewhere in your present life. Think of a person in that space, someone who accepted you with unconditional love. I often think of one or the other of my grandmothers. Now, typically in metta, there are a set of phrases. You can make variations on them, but don't get too wrapped up in the exact wording. I'm going to use my phrases, and then I'm going to get out of the way and sort of let you continue. So imagining this person, this person who loved you as you were, loves you as you are, with all your flaws and beauty, someone with whom you don't have to be anyone other than yourself. And imagine them saying to you something like this set of phrases, which you can then repeat. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. May you live with ease. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. May you live with ease. Allow the phrases to repeat in your mind, at any pace that's comfortable for you. Don't worry if you feel disconnected from a phrase. Don't have to pay too much attention to how it feels or should feel. But allow the phrases to continue, trying to connect to their meaning. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. May you live with ease. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. 
May you live with ease. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. May you live with ease. If your sense of the person drifts away or gets fuzzy, gently make space for them to kind of swim back into consciousness. Don't worry that you've drifted. Just allow space for the return. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. May you live with ease. And now, try turning it around. Imagine yourself saying these words to this person who loved you or loves you unconditionally. Imagine wishing them well. All the friendly openness of your heart for someone who is not you. Who's living their own life, but for whom you wish the best. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. May you live with ease. Whether they are living or not isn't important. Send them this wish. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. May you live with ease. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you see clearly. May you live with ease. If may you is unfamiliar or uncomfortable, you can just go with be safe, be happy, see clearly, live with ease. Be safe, be happy, see clearly, live with ease. Be safe, 
be happy. See clearly. Live with ease. Now, let's broaden this. Let's let go of the phrases. Feel yourself in a state of acceptance. Everything you are, everything you are not or wish you could be, What you are is what you should be. Where you are is where you should be. There is nothing else needed, nothing more. Know where you have to be right now, nothing else you have to do. To yourself, to your experience, say welcome, friend. Welcome, friend. To doubt, to fear, say welcome, friend. To the shopping list that pops up in your head randomly, say, huh, shopping list, welcome, friend. To the ache in the back or the shoulders, tension in the forehead, welcome, friend, welcome. And in the center of it all, in the center of your being, the breath, to life, welcome, friend. Welcome. When you're ready, at your own pace, you can open the eyes to the light 
to the room, to the day. Welcome, friend. <laughs>